Well, thank you, Pastor Daniel, for the opportunity. It is a privilege to share with all of you this morning. And thank you, everyone, who has welcomed us. Uh, This church has been a place of refreshment uh, for us in between times. And we will miss friends we've made here as we make our uh, transition. Uh, And uh, uh, it was so nice of you to have a potluck meal in our honor today. Uh, But but we actually won't be joining you. We're taking off after the service to go and visit my wife's grandmother, go up and see her. Uh, So that's why we won't be hanging around here. But we will be here next week to worship. And then... And then we are heading off to what the Lord has next for us. But it is a privilege to speak with you today. And if you'd like to follow along, let me invite you to open your Bible to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 18. And in particular, verse 17 is where we're going to be picking up and following the story. So 1 Kings, chapter 18, verse 17. We have here a story about the power of God. And what a wonderful theme is the power of God. For there is our confidence in the face of a hostile world, in the face of all the troubles, all the worries, and everything that drags us down. An interesting uh, uh, illustration of uh, this theme of the power of God when I was in seminary at Trinity, as, as Dr. Daniel mentioned, I had, a, I had during those years in seminary a wonderful arrangement, uh, a back-and-forth arrangement, where I would go for nine months to graduate school studying theology, and then for the three months in the summer, I was a day camp counselor at a Christian camp working with six-year-olds. And it was a wonderful back and forth because, uh, because you, you get, you know, you work with six-year-olds, if, if you're not, if you're not the, just the right person is built for, you work with them for three months and you're ready for some adult conversation. Uh, but then you get there in grad school and you're in the library and you're doing the intense exegesis of something and a great craft idea suddenly occurs. Uh, and so it was a nice back and forth. Well, when I would be uh, with, uh, with the kids, they can, they can be funny how they process things. And, of course, there are, they live in a different world. Some of their concepts are different. They haven't, haven't, of course, learned about some things. One day, I had my group of six-year-olds, and they were in Bible time, and someone else was teaching. And uh, I went out to do something, and then I came back. And, of course, after every activity with six-year-olds, you take them, you go to the bathrooms and the drinking fountain and whatnot before you do your next thing. And, and we were there, and I wanted to test them and see if they'd paid attention during Bible time. And so I asked them, what did you learn about during Bible time today? And one little girl said to me, we learned about the powerful flower. I didn't remember the powerful flower in the Bible. And this little girl, she was a bit of a troublemaker, but the other kids insisted, yes, they'd learned about the powerful flower. So I looked to my, my staff assistant, and she was there with them, and she didn't know what they were talking about. And so we're trying to figure this out, and eventually my assistant figured out what had happened was that the Bible teachers, they didn't realize where the kids' minds were, and they gave an illustration using the Byron Nuclear Power Plant. 
And the kids, six-year-olds, don't know what a power plant is, a nuclear power plant, so they hear power plant and they think powerful flower. And you can imagine how this all worked out in their minds. But what is so great is that God sometimes can get his message through despite the speaker's miscommunication. The little girl said to me, the powerful flower is very big and makes lots of smoke, but God is more powerful than the powerful flower. And what can we say to that but amen? God is more powerful than the powerful flower. The, well, the power of God, however we illustrate it, however we try to capture it, whatever we try to compare it to, exceeds all comparison. And it is this almighty, wonderful power of God which our scripture passage today lays before us and which then gives us the the, the anchor of, of strength as we face the storms of this life, as we face temptation, as we face trouble, as we face everything that comes our way. And so the key thought that I want to impress upon you this morning is to hold to God Almighty. When you think about the power of God, that should inspire us to hold to God Almighty to expose idols, exalt God's power, and experience God's grace. Let's have another prayer, and then we'll dig into our passage. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your almighty, infinite power. Thank you for your wonderful love. Thank you for the privilege of being together, and that you've spoken so that we may know you. Draw us near, we pray. Open our minds to understand and our hearts to believe that we may receive everything you have for us. Amen. This first thought of exposed idols. When we're here in 1 Kings 18, what's the story so far? It is a story, unfortunately, of idolatry. The wicked kings of Israel... If you know the story of the Bible, you know that after the time of Saul, that first king of Israel, and then David, the great king after God's own heart, the mighty warrior king, and Solomon, who brought the kingdom of Israel to the height of its splendor and wealth and and power, after that, the kingdom split in two. Solomon's son, uh, Rehoboam, was not a wise man. He pushed things too hard, and ten of the tribes went away, and they followed a wicked man named Jeroboam. And Jeroboam, he wanted to break the people away from their loyalty to the temple in Jerusalem. And so he introduced idolatry. He put golden calves at towns named Bethel and Dan so the people would have other places to go to worship by worshiping these idols. And he then sets off a line of wicked kings leading eventually to Ahab. And so we're in the 9th century, mid-9th century BC here during the reign of Ahab in north Israel. Ahab, you may not know this, but in worldly terms, Ahab was a great success in worldly terms. He reigned for 22 years. That's a pretty good reign. He had great military victories over over the king of Aram. He was was part of a great alliance that halted the advance of the Assyrians into the area. And this isn't even mentioned in the Bible. 
where the Bible, where in the career of, of Ahab, you would expect a historical chronicle to talk about his great victory where he helped fight back the Assyrians. What the Bible mentions, what God cares about, is the wicked deed in which he stole the vineyard and murdered the man Naboth. God cares about different things than the world cares about. And so we see that though Ahab was a worldly success, he was a spiritual failure. He led Israel into idolatry. He married a woman named Jezebel, who was a Phoenician princess from the land north of Israel. And and that was a shrewd political move to marry her in worldly terms. But in spiritual terms, it was wickedness, for it brought more idolatry into the land of Israel. And so when we read in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 30, what is God's verdict on Ahab? And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And so he led Israel further into idolatry. And so God, the righteous and holy God, brings judgment upon his erring people. When we come to 1 Kings chapter 17, we read in verse 1, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And it came to pass. Look at that statement there. It is said, it is guaranteed by the life of the Lord God. As the Lord God lives. Bear that in mind because that is precisely the theme that comes to play here. As the Lord lives... The drought has come upon the land because of their wickedness. And then Elijah has to go into hiding. First he goes to this ravine where the ravens feed him, for God takes care of his own. And then he goes, he goes and he hides in a town named Zarephath, which is a Phoenician town. And so we might say that Elijah's hiding place is in Jezebel's backyard. Uh, You may think of that verse from the Psalms, uh, said to the Lord, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That is what God did for Elijah while he was hiding from Ahab and Jezebel during the years of the drought. And then God in his mercy reaches out to his people whom he has disciplined. And so when we come to 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1, we read, After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. Remember that as well, because that lays out the program for what's going on here. Ultimately, this is part of God's plan to reach down uh, to bring deliverance to his people. And so it is a picture looking forward to God's work reaching down to the lost to bring salvation. Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And so when we read chapter 18, and you can go back and read it in detail later, you see that uh, Elijah goes back. First he meets with a man named Obadiah, who was a servant of Ahab, and they're out looking, Obadiah's out looking for some grass to feed the animals so they don't die. And, uh, and Ahab's, uh, Elijah says to Obadiah, tell Ahab I'm back. And Obadiah says, why are you trying to kill me? 
I'm a good man. I, I protected the Lord's prophets. And I'm going to go tell Ahab that you're back. And then you're going to disappear. God's going to take you somewhere else. And he's going to be so mad he's going to kill me. And Elijah says, no, I'm going to appear to him today. And so the meeting is arranged. And so we come to where we're focusing in this morning. The story as it picks up in chapter 18, verse 17 of the book of 1 Kings. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Ahab, the wicked, who has led Israel into idolatry, has the gall to say to God's prophet, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? As though Elijah really were the one who stopped the rain. As though it weren't God's judgment on a people who turned against him. As though, which Elijah is going to point out, it weren't really Ahab's fault for bringing Israel into idolatry. But here we see Ahab The wicked king showing us the wickedness of the human heart. And can't you relate? Our tendency is to blame others, to blame anyone, to blame even God himself, rather than accept responsibility for what we have done. Well, Elijah says, and he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. The problem was idolatry. How many of the problems our society is facing can we trace to idolatry? Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Elijah brings out his challenge. The time for waiting is past, and he calls on Ahab to bring out the prophets. There's going to be a contest between Baal and God, the true God. Baal's going to bring his 450 prophets and the 400 prophets of Asherah, another idolatrous fake goddess, and they're going to meet at Mount Carmel, which is not nearly as delicious as it sounds. No, it's a mountain or a range of mountains in the north of Israel. And that's very interesting. It's not a central location. There may be many reasons that God chose that location. But it's interesting that once again we're coming up near into Baal's turf, as it were. And so we may wonder, this may be the first clue of how things are being slated in a way that's going to demonstrate the power of God because Baal is being given every supposed advantage. Beginning with the kind of, still within Israel, but kind of, Home court advantage, we may say. And so they gather. And we come to verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Elijah addresses the people. He brings out the issue. And this is very interesting. Look closely at what, he, at what he says. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? Follow the one who truly is God. He's challenging their whole perception. Because you see, we're used to living in a world where there is some sense of exclusivity. That either... either 
God, the, the God who Christians worship as God, or, or, or the Hindu uh, deities and so on. We have this exclusive mindset, and that's the fruit of 2,000 years of Christian history. But in the ancient world, it wasn't so. In the ancient world, they believed in many gods. And, and y- y- they didn't believe these, my gods, are the only gods. It would be typical to believe that there's many gods, and everybody has their own gods. And you can worship as many as you want. In fact, people thought that that was a pretty savvy thing to do. And there were particular gods who were supposed to be over particular kind of areas geographically or over particular things. And so if you were going to go on a trip on a boat, you'd want to find the right god to pray to for your trip on a boat. You'd find a different god to pray to for the harvest. You might have your favorite God, but it was rare to say, I'm only going to worship this God, and even rarer to say, this God is the only God who actually exists. But the true God has told people the truth and has communicated to his people, there is only one God, one true God, and all of the other gods are fake At best, they're fake. At worst, they're demons impersonating gods. But in any case, they are not gods. And Elijah is meeting them here, and he is challenging the whole framework. It's not, let's pick the stronger god and make that our primary god. It's, let's see who is God. You see, he forces the choice right into that domain to challenge the whole way of thinking. And so he says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And this is, where, this is where sometimes a single word can be so powerful. This is very interesting. And unfortunately, many English translations of the Bible obscure this. Uh, but in some, I'm reading out of the ESV here, what you see is that this, the, the word, he says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? And, and when you come down further uh, to, to, uh, to verse 26, you hear about how the prophets of Baal went around the altar It says, and they limped around the altar that they had made. Now, whatever translation you're using, it may use different words. But I hope it uses the same word in both of those verses. Limped in ESV, whatever it is there. Because it's the same word in the Hebrew, and that's a valuable connection. It's the word pishim. It's only used three times in the whole of the Old Testament. Only three times, and two of them are in this verse. And so what we see when we notice that is that there is a connection here that the way in which the people of Israel are wavering, limping between these two opinions is a pagan way of life. It is connected to the way in which the prophets of Baal limp around their altar, as it were. And Elijah challenges that whole perspective, follow the one true God. But the people make no response. And so a challenge is called for to prove the point. Elijah wants them to see who truly is God. And so he says, Elijah said to the people, we're in verse 22, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. 
And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Elijah notes the discrepancy. It's little old him against Baal's 450 prophets. But he's not scared. He knows what every, uh, what everyone who knows the truth knows. And that is, uh, how do they say it? God plus one is a majority. He, he, is, he makes the challenge. And, and he says, we're going to have a duel and it's going to be a fire lighting contest. Each side gets a bull. You're going to prepare for sacrifice. You're not going to light it. Call on God. And the God who answers by fire is the true God. Interesting kind of contest. It's interesting because it's going to be a flashy miracle, but not the most impressive of all miracles. We're talking about the God who made heaven and earth out of nothing, making some fire fall out of the sky. Doesn't seem like much. But while it's not hard for God, it can be hard for others to do. It's hard for me. I was having a bonfire the other night, and I had to pull out the lighter fluid, and I commented, some people who are here I co- know I commented, I don't understand how anything ever catches fire accidentally. I can't make it catch fire on purpose here. <laughs> what about for Baal? How is it going to be for Baal to light this fire? Well, in theory, it should be easy. This is very interesting. The word Baal means Lord. It's a title. And so it's used of different false gods in the Bible. And so we can't be sure. But I think that the Baal we're talking about here is the Baal, otherwise known as Hadad, who came from up in Jezebel's territory, that Baal. And that Baal, uh, we have ancient carvings of him, and they picture him holding a lightning bolt. He's like the Greek god Zeus. He's a god particularly associated with fire coming from heaven to strike the earth. So once again, Elijah seems to be playing right into the enemy's hand. Let Baal have every advantage. This is his strong suit. Sending fire down from the sky, that's totally Baal's thing. It's like challenging Lance Armstrong to a bike race or Usain Bolt to a sprint or Dr. Daniel to a theology contest. It should be no contest at all. But the people agree to the test. And we get to see the powerlessness of idols. And after setting all of this up, Elijah says to them, you go first. What a gentleman Elijah is. See, the stakes are so high. If he loses this contest, he loses his mission. The people fall into the mire of idolatry and they're, they're, they're not getting out. For him personally, it would be a defeat and he'll probably would be killed. You'd think he'd want a one-on-one contest, neutral location, neutral activity. But Elijah's been giving away the advantage, supposedly, from the get-go. He's put the contest way up near Baal's home turf. He said, you can have all 450 of you prophets of Baal against little old me. And the king is there. The king, who's a big Baal supporter, is there with all his political clout. And they've got the 400 prophets of Asherah along for good measure. I don't know what they're doing this whole time. They're probably waving pom-poms and leading cheers. They're saying, Baal, Baal, he can't fail. Like that bull from head to tail. Hey-ya! 
And Elijah said, let's have a firelighting contest, which is supposed to be Baal's main thing, Baal the storm god. And now Elijah says, why don't you go first? Elijah's not even going to get a turn if Baal lights the fire. But that's how Elijah's doing it. Where does this confidence come from? It comes from knowing the almighty God. Do you have a confidence like Elijah in here? Oh, now, when most of us, we, we wouldn't compare ourselves to Elijah, but at least a little bit like Elijah that comes from knowing the true, the almighty God. The prophets of Baal begin to do their thing. And they took the bowl that was given them, and they prepared it, and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us! But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. There's no response. That phrase, there's no voice, no one answered, begins to hammer the point that's going to be followed up on. And now Elijah, he starts to taunt them. A little bit of holy mockery enters the story here. At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself. Yes, Elijah said maybe Baal is going potty so he can't come. Or he is on a journey. Or perhaps he's asleep and must be wakened. All things that could keep a human being from answering. All things that don't apply to the one true God. All things that help to underline that Baal is no God. They did shout louder. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. They try everything they can. They've got their, they've got their dance going. They're crying out and, and, and making what noise they can. They're even cutting themselves. Understand, God cares about your pain. God cares about your hurt. But that doesn't mean we hurt ourselves to try to draw in God's attention. God cares about his hurting children, but that's not the way to reach out to him. But it does make sense that a pagan idol would want pain. But Baal is no God. And so Elijah gives them until evening. He's given them all day. He's given them more than a fair chance. But the result is underlined in these words at the end of verse 29. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. And here we pause and think about this first point to expose idols. Are we... Worshiping the true God who can hear, who can answer prayer, who pays attention and who cares and loves and is able to act? Or are we drawn aside to idols who are unable to save those who call to him? In the first place, see we have to move on, we have to take this to a a second, what we might call 
a, a secondary spiritual level to make sure it's hitting home for those who are here, who are Christians and so on. But let's not ignore that the primary application of this passage is literally to resist and reject literal idols. And that is a very big reality in the world in which we live. It is a growing reality. Our culture is coming more and more to look like the culture of the, the, the Greco-Roman world where the gospel first came. Paganism in various forms is on the rise. And the basic exclusive claim of biblical religion, there is one God and he alone can be worshipped and he alone can deliver people, this claim is regarded as hatred. Did you see that a few weeks ago? It came from a surprising source. It was very interesting. It was it unfolded on Twitter, as so many things do, but it made news because it was so interesting. Did you see it? There was a woman named Lizzie Marbach, an anti-abortion activist from Ohio, and she tweeted, There is no hope for any of us outside of having faith in Jesus Christ alone. Not a statement of hatred, not a surprising statement, a statement of one of the most basic claims of the Christian faith. There's no hope for any of us outside of having faith in Jesus Christ alone. To which Ohio Republican Representative Max Miller replied, This is one of the most bigoted tweets I have ever seen. Delete it, Lizzie. Religious freedom in the United States applies to every religion. You have gone too far. There's a statement on the the state of American politics to where people supposedly in the conservative party misunderstand religious freedom so badly that they think that saying that Jesus is the only way is a violation of someone's religious freedom. But what's happening here is Representative Miller is just breathing in the air around him, which says that exclusive religious claims are bigoted. And we have to maintain, we have a Bible, we have the Word of God, and the exclusive claims of God, the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ are not negotiable. There is only one God. There is only one way. Other religions are not different paths leading to the same place. We don't worship the same God as the Muslims do or or other religious groups. Other religions are lies. They're idolatrous and they lead to death. The Lord alone is God and he alone can deliver. And so then to take it to that second level because probably very few people in this room Uh, 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 would disagree with that first point, where we have to really ask uh, of ourselves and look at our hearts is, of course, that in a secondary way, anything that takes the place of God in your life becomes, to some extent, an idol to you. We need to be aware of the more subtle idols. Good things like family or success or a stable home or a loving marriage that none of these things can be allowed to displace the Lord God. The pursuit of health, the pursuit of happiness, none of these things can be allowed to displace God. Beware of idols in your heart. Pause just a moment and ask, is there something that you are looking to apart from Jesus Christ to give you fullness in life? Are there idols in your heart? 
we must expose idols, and then we can turn and exalt God's power. For the passage goes on, we're in verse 30 now. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. We could stop and just finish the rest of the sermon just preaching on that verse there. We won't because I want to finish the thing, but come near to me. There's the call of God to his people, spoken now through the prophet. On the one hand, of course, literally, he's just calling them to come over so he can show them to make sure they see what's going to happen. But it is expressing the whole theme here. God has reached down to the lost and erring people. If you have been running away from God, this voice, you can see his calling Echoed here, he reaches down to those who are lost. And he says, come near to me. And the book of James says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. The first thing Elijah does is he restores the fallen altar, symbolic of restoring right worship in God's people. The altar has been neglected, allowed to fall down. It reminds us of the barren spiritual condition of Israel who have rejected the one true God and run after idols. But of course there is symbolism that he took 12 stones. We're not even left guessing, but we're told thereafter the names, the numbers of the 12 tribes of Jacob to whom the Lord came and said, Israel shall be your name. And so even as he's building this altar, we see it's a parable of what's going on. God is rebuilding his people. And this is something that God does again and again and again. It's the story of the book of Judges over and over again. It's the story of God's mighty deliverances that we read about in the Old Testament. And, of course, it actually, truly, fully happens in the work of Jesus Christ, who did not build an altar out of 12 stones, but rather built a church out of Twelve disciples, and one who betrayed him, and one who was then counted into the number, and the twelve plus one, as Paul was called into the people, but we're getting too far afield. These twelve stones, as he's rebuilding it, he is calling the people back to him. God graciously reaches down. It was on another mountain, Mount Sinai, that God had given the covenant of the law. As in sovereign and gracious action, he drew a people to himself and set them apart to be his own. And now it is on this mountain, Mount Carmel, that in his sovereign and gracious action, God demonstrates his power to draw them back to him. Elijah prepares the altar of the Lord, symbolic of the people of Israel. And with the stones, he built this altar, and then he proceeds... Because it would be too easy to just go from there to God sending down fire. Then he proceeds to make the challenge harder. He digs a trench about the altar as big as would hold uh, two seas of seed. I think that's about three and a half gallons. Uh, And he put the wood in order and he cut the bull in pieces and he laid it on the wood. And he said, now we make it harder. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. 
and they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time, and they did it a third time. And the water ran down the altar and filled the trench also with water. You see, with the false prophets, all the repetition was spent on trying to summon their false god Baal to action. With the true prophet, all the repetition is spent on trying to make it as hard as possible for God. As though anything were hard for God. But to prove the point that nothing is hard for God. He pours water all over it. Oh man. I may not be much of a woodsman, but I know that that's how you make it harder to light a fire. Not easier. Last night we had a fire, and I was letting it burn out there. And my wife said to me to go pour some water on that fire. And I said, it'll burn out. And she made me go pour water on the fire. Because that's how you put a fire out, not how you start a fire up. But nothing is hard for God. The source of Elijah's overpowering, seemingly crazy confidence is knowing the one true and almighty God. And his confidence was not misplaced. And he prays. In verse 36 it says, And at the time of the offering of the oblation, that is, there were two daily offerings that were done in Israel at the temple, one in the morning and one in the evening. And so it's at the time of the evening offering, just the right time to be offering an offering to God. At the time when they would be offering their sacrifice down in Jerusalem at the temple, Elijah is up here at Mount Carmel in the land of idolatry, having rebuilt the the altar of the living God. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Look at how simple his prayer is compared to the elaborate displays of the pagans. He addresses God. He asks him to vindicate his own identity and glory. And he humbly asks God to answer his prayer, and God acts. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Now there's fire from the sky. The stones, the dirt, the water is consumed by the fire of God in a dramatic display of power, graciously given to an undeserving people who had turned away from him. The Lord demonstrates that he is God. And thankfully, this hard-hearted people at least finally get the message. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. How we need to understand that word. Who is the Lord of your life? Who is the one true God? Who is able to save and deliver in any and every situation? Who should you worship? Who should you live for and die for? The Lord, he is God. 
and the Lord alone is God. The people get the message, and we should too. And so judgment comes on the false prophets. There's a stern reminder. Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Exalt God's power. He is God and he alone. He created this universe and everything that is in it. He is able to do everything. And the big theological word is he is omnipotent. That means he is all-powerful. And this is a reason for reverence. Idolatry is a dangerous thing. It's not just that idols can't save, so it's a worthless thing. It's a dangerous thing. It's hazardous to our souls. Do you live in awe of God? Have that right fear of the Lord that a child beloved of God should have? It's a reason for reverence. It's a reason for confidence in your troubles, in your struggles. Are you trusting in the Almighty God? Do you have something that you know that you're going to face today or this week? Something that is going to tempt you to fear or even despair? Something that, 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 is, that is just going to weigh upon you? Are you able to bring that to the Almighty God? He is able to do all things. And of course, it is a reason for hope. For it, the great demonstration of God's power is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see the same thing we're seeing here fulfilled. For here we have a revelation of the love of God, reaching down to his wandering people to draw them back to him, and a revelation of the power of God, sending fire from on high to consume the altar. But this points us forward to the ultimate self-revelation when God the Son became man and how he came and lived and walked among us and showed the love of God as nothing else could in giving himself when he died upon the cross for your sins and mine. And the power of God, the life-giving, renewing power of God displayed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ so that all of those who place their trust in him can have eternal life forgiven and made new, can live forever because Jesus Christ lives in you if you come to faith in him and you are found in him. Exalt God's power. And finally, bear with me for just a few more minutes here, experience God's grace. The story doesn't quite end there. There is a last little bit We actually return to what the story was supposedly going to be about. We've forgotten by this time that when God sent Elijah, we weren't told that the plan was going to be this whole business of the altars and the duel and the fire. What we were told was the end result. Verse 18, 1, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. We have a downpour of God's grace coming here. And so, Ahab said, so Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there's the sound of the rushing of rain. You go on in the passage, you see that when Elijah said this to Ahab, there's a sound of the rushing of rain, there was not a cloud in the sky. But the ears of faith hear what's a coming. 
The ears of faith hear the promises of God on the way. There's a sound of the rushing of rain. And so Elijah goes apart. Ahab goes up to eat and drink. That's the level that Ahab lives on. He goes up to eat and drink. But Elijah goes up onto the mountain once more. And he bowed himself down to the earth and he put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. He's waiting for the promise of God that he knows is coming. There is another repetition here. How interesting. For the servant comes back and looked, he said, and he said, there is nothing. And he said, go again, seven times. So he has to go again and again and again. There's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing. And at the seventh time he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. Sometimes that's how it starts. But the eyes of faith can see. The ears of faith can hear the rain a coming when there's not a cloud in the sky. The eyes of faith can see in a little cloud as small as a man's hand the promises of God coming. Do you have confidence in the promises of God? It starts out so small, but God's word is good. And based on that, Elijah sends another word. He says, go say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stop you. And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. One last miracle, thrown in at the end with almost no elaboration here. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance to Jezreel. What a wonderful display of God's power. But don't lose sight of the wonderful display of God's grace in this passage. God didn't have to do any of this. When the people had wandered from him, he could have just poured out the judgment on them. God didn't have to call this contest. He didn't have to prove himself to them. That's what's so wrong with some people's perception of God. They figure, God's got to prove himself to me. I believe in God if he'd prove himself to me. I'll pray and ask God for a miracle, and if he does it, then I'll believe In him. How arrogant can we get? How arrogant. There was a famous there was a famous atheist, I think it was Bertrand Russell, who was asked something like what are you going to do if when you, you know, you die and, and, and you go uh, to judgment and God's there? What are you going to say? And he said, I'm going to say, not enough proof, God. He's not going to say that. You know what he's going to do? Every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's what's going to happen. God has given us abundant evidence of his reality. God doesn't owe us anything. And so when we see a passage like this, we're reminded of God's grace reaching down to us with love and deliverance and the opportunity of mercy. And so when we think about the cross, when we take the Lord's Supper as we're about to, we are reminded of the grace of God who sent to us in our undeserving state, sent to us his own son who bore our sins and rose to give us life so that in him we could experience His grace and love, we could know him and live with him and walk with him in a relationship, having him as our Lord and Savior, 
knowing that the Lord is God. Have you experienced God's grace? The grace that is written about here in 1 Kings and that is shown in its finest, fullest display in Jesus Christ. Have you experienced God's grace? Is this not just something that you know is true in your head, but something that you know is true in your heart? If not, that grace of God is here for you, and you can know him today. You can experience God's grace. Know this almighty, all-powerful God, and hold to God almighty. We face all kinds of trouble in this world. Who knows what's coming? I don't, but we know the one who eventually is going to put all things right. We know the one who will be with us no matter what we go through, and we can trust him. Hold to God Almighty. You have another prayer with me this morning. Thank you, God, for each other. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your wonderful power and your awesome love. Thank you for your word which reveals to us this truth about your nature and your grace. Thank you for this church. I pray that you will bless us and draw us close to yourself and help us to follow you each day. Amen.